1: Presidential debate was underway. I was reading, as were uh, Sam and Amelia, uh, some of the posts that people were putting up on social media. And uh, Victoria Helmley uh, put this up on Facebook. She said, Last night I kept thinking I cannot wait for Political Rewind's take on this insanity. Well, uh, Victoria, wait no longer. In a few minutes, we will be talking about last night's debate between President Trump. And uh, Joe Biden. Uh, But before we do that, uh, and before I introduce our terrific panel uh, to discuss all of that, um, I want to remind you, if you've been listening to us, if you heard us yesterday, that uh, GPB Radio is in the midst of its semi-annual, that's all we do it, twice a year, uh, pledge drive. And throughout the day, you'll notice that our programming is um, truncated because we have uh, pledge breaks. Uh, where we encourage you to contribute to the station. Um, As I said yesterday, our bosses here at the radio side understand how important Political Rewind is, especially right now with just five weeks left before the election. And so when we said to them, can we please do our show, Uh, pretty much uninterrupted by pledge breaks, we didn't even have to beg. They said, of course. Uh, We understand that the show matters more than ever right now. But, but in not having those pledge breaks, which really do work. Um, As you hear all of the exhortations to contribute, you typically respond. So I'm asking you right now, we're not doing pledge breaks during the show today. I'm gonna mention it now and a little bit later on. Please, if you are not yet a supporter of GPB Radio, we really need your help. All of our programming is paid for by listeners. And uh, that goes for Political Rewind, which is now five days a week because you asked us to put it on the air five days a week. And that's demanded greater resources, which we're more than happy to provide because we we really do appreciate how much this show means to you. So you can go to GPB.org right now. If you're not a contributor, I urge you to See if you can come up with some way to support us. Now, I know this is not a great time. We're, we're struggling with the pandemic. We're dealing with racial injustice. These are huge issues in the country. But Political Rewind has been with you every day to talk about those issues. So please help us at gpb.org. My thanks to Bryant, to Lorraine. Uh, Bryant's from Raven Gap. Lorraine from Cumming. Uh, Georgine and Savannah are just some of the people who yesterday said that they thought this show was worth supporting. And I would encourage the rest of you to join if you can. And that's that. Now, let's get to our panel for today. Greg Bluestein is with me. He, of course, is a political reporter at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And uh, Greg, uh, you were up late last night, as were most of the panel watching this debate. I can't wait to hear some of your. Uh, comments on it. But in the meantime, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great. I'm about to go see Vice President Pence, who's arriving in Atlanta later today, um, and I'll get to hear from him about how he thought the debate went.
1: (laughs) I forgot that he was in town today. Where is he going to be?
2: He'll be delivering a speech to the Faith and Freedom Coalition as part of a Republican effort to shore up uh, evangelical votes, which um, are showing some signs of erosion right now about a uh, recent polls showed Biden, um, you know, he's still going to lose that vote, but he is uh, gaining about 12 percent on what Hillary Clinton had. So that's that's a concern for Republicans.
1: Faith and Freedom Coalition, of course, founded by um, Ralph Reed, uh, an Athens guy who has gone on to uh, work in evangelical movement and created one of the most significant uh, organizations representing evangelicals uh we're also joined today by your colleague from washington greg tia mitchell the washington correspondent for the atlanta journal constitution tia thank you for uh being with us today uh you're working from your home office in in uh in uh where silver
0: spring so right outside dc silver spring
1: yes well thank you for being here today um we're glad to have you uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie is also with us today. She, of course, political science uh, professor at Emory University, but also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and Difference. Um, Andre, thank you for being with us. Were you up as late? I, I've got about three hours of sleep, so if I'm not talking coherently, please <laughs> forgive me. Have you had, have you had a sleep a, a shortage uh, overnight, too?
3: I think I had four hours of sleep.
1: Okay. Well, I think we'll still have a good conversation. And your colleague from Emory University, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, who also is a professor of political science, joins us as well. And Alan, at some point uh, during the show today, we'll talk about the debate for a while, but when we move on, um, we're going to talk a little bit about a piece you just posted on Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball that uh, right now suggests pretty good news for Joe Biden as he uh, looks for electoral votes in the election, right?
4: Right. <clears throat> so in that article, I, I tried to project what the electoral vote would look like now based on the most recent state polling, uh, as well as some projections uh, for states where there hasn't been sufficient polling, um, because we can predict pretty accurately how uh, those states will probably come out based on how the other states are falling right now and the, the 2016 results. And, and when you do that, it looks like uh, Biden has a strong lead at the moment. Um, he's pretty close to having. Don't, give it, Don't okay. give it all away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give it all away.
1: Don't give it all away. We're going to save that for a little later in the show. Um, Greg Bluestein, let me start. Let's talk about the debate. Um, you know, Greg, uh, we as 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 journalists, we we believe in balance. We believe that we need to be as uh, fair-minded as possible, um, but balance being balanced doesn't mean denying reality. And from almost all quarters last night, left or right, uh, there was a clear feeling that President Trump went off the charts in terms of the way he behaved on the stage, and don't take our word for it, Michael Goodwin, a conservative columnist for the New York Post, a very conservative columnist, said this this morning. America was mistreated Tuesday. A highly anticipated showdown in a closely fought presidential election in a deeply divided country had the potential to be a clarifying moment. Instead, it was a sweaty, formless flop. Worse, it was annoying. Neither the candidates or moderator Chris Chris Wallace acquitted themselves well. The bulk of the blame, says Goodwin, falls on Trump. From the get-go, the president was determined to rattle Joe Biden by being persist by being a persistent interrupter, rarely letting the former vice president finish two consecutive sentences. Wallace repeatedly scolded Trump reminded him that his campaign had agreed to rules. Those were not good moments for a president whose personality is a drag on his policies for many of the voters he needs to win over if he wants a second term.
2: Greg? Ouch. Look, he got under Joe Biden's skin, but I'm not sure what that accomplished. Um, and and he intensified claims of widespread electoral fraud without any evidence. Uh, he he, he Try to batter and bruise Joe Biden throughout. He interrupted him more than 70 times, according to a CNN co. Um, but I, I just thought it was a, a disaster. Uh, and and I, don't, I, don't, I can't imagine any undecided voters being swayed by that 90-minute mess of a debate. And I think calling it a debate is actually an overstatement. I mean, look, Trump called Biden stupid. Biden called Trump a clown and a liar. That was just the first 15 minutes. And, and that set the, the tone for constant interruptions, crosstalk, name calling bickering. My wife gave up about 15 minutes into it. Uh, I didn't hear really any legitimate policy discussion that broke new ground between the two throughout the entire affair.
1: Um, Tia, could anybody look good on that stage, or whether they were one of the candidates or Chris Wallace, given the way that it unfolded last night? Was it a a losing proposition for everybody?
0: I think once President Trump decided he wasn't going to follow the rules. You know, it's hard to have a healthy conversation with anyone, um, any two people, if you can't agree on kind of the rules of engagement. And I think early on, it became very clear that President Trump was not willing to follow the rules of engagement. And that, of course, emboldened Vice President Biden to you know, be combative and, and mouth off a little bit. And again, as, as you guys have said, um, the moderator just really didn't have, I don't, I think the moderator failed to anticipate how bad it could get. And so they really, he didn't have Chris Wallace didn't have like any options other than to try his best to over talk them. And that didn't work. You know, so I think there are definite lessons, unfortunately, like with many things with the President Trump administration, you know, he's requiring us to to think about, you know, new options for a new way of operating that perhaps set a new precedent. So, you know,
3: it's really hard to sort of describe what we saw last night and not swear. Um, And I think that that kind of sums up sort of what was problematic about that particular debate. Um, In some ways, it was very classic Trump. He hit all of his talking points. He said all the things that he says every place else. So I think you got a good picture. And we're used to him being pugilistic. And I think he thought that by being pugilistic uh, that somehow Joe Biden was going to melt into a puddle. And Biden Mm -hmm. didn't. And that was all he had to do last night was to basically appear sentient. And he did. Um, And so in that respect, you know, Biden certainly gets a lot of credit. But I think the larger question is, what damage does this do to the presidency? What damage does this do to us reputationally? my brother usually does not let his kids watch the news, in part because he's trying to filter out bad stuff that he doesn't want to explain to them. But for some reason that I don't know yet because I haven't talked to him um, in person, he let his kids watch at least the first part of the debate. And my seven-year-old niece said, don't they know that kids might be watching this? And I think that that's all that needs to be said about sort of like the decorum of last night.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that, that's just been said. Um, to me, it, it almost seemed like Trump uh, was treating this as if he was at one of his rallies uh, and that he was basically just trying to uh, speak and communicate to his face the kind of people who show up for his rallies, uh, the kind of behavior that we saw, the language that he used, um, his refusal to condemn white supremacy. his uh, continuing to raise questions about the legitimacy of the election and mail-in voting. I mean, these are all things we've heard before, but we particularly hear them when he's out on the campaign trail talking to his strong supporters at these campaign rallies. So uh, the problem is that this is a much, much broader audience, including a lot of voters who are not in his base. And he is trailing in this election by all measures we have available. He needs to change that. And he's not going to change it by behaving as if he's only interested in communicating with his base.
1: You know, it's understandable that uh, those of us who are, you know, trying to uh, analyze politics right now look at this debate and talk about whether Trump did better than Biden, Biden won over Trump, whatever. But I think some of the most interesting observations that we've gotten at Political Rewind are from people who had a different take. Uh, So here's just one of the tweets that came into Political Rewind last night. James Kelly said, civil discourse is officially dead. America lost tonight. Let's see if Biden now declines the remaining debates. Well, we can talk about that in a minute. But but, but James Kelly expresses a feeling that an awful lot of people had, which is we all lost. This was our loss. We didn't have an opportunity to hear two people have a— a, a, a smart conversation about things that matter greatly to this country right now. Greg, I want to play. It's interesting. I picked our sound bites for the show today at about 4.30 this morning. Uh, the first one we're going to play to you happens to be pretty much the same one that NPR News just did. But I think it's worth listening to it again.
2: I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you that because question? the you question to is, question is justice, the question is the question is radical left. you Listen. Who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list, right. gentlemen?
1: Is, I think we've this is ended so this.
2: He's going to We are not going to give a list. We have
4: ended this segment. We're going to move on. To-
1: so, Greg, obviously, that was a question about the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, Trump had or. or Chris Wallace had asked Biden whether or not he really was going to support the idea of expanding the Supreme Court to have a more balanced court. Um, And uh, Biden didn't want to answer that. And that's how that exchange unfolded. But, you know, will you shut up, man? Um, There are going to be Biden supporters who think he was brave and forceful uh, to uh, give that back to the president. Uh, But there are going to be people who say he contributed to the uh, to the unfortunate uh, tone of last night with comments like that.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And the Biden campaign or at least his supporters are already selling T-shirts with that phrase, "Will you shut up, man, on social media. Um, But that was a that, that was an example of how this ugly affair was was, although I think President Trump. Took the lion's share of the credit for the ugly affair. Uh, Joe mm-hmm. Biden didn't help himself, uh, especially with some exchanges like that. You, you're right And some people will, will say that he that he was valiant in his standing up uh, against President Trump, but um, you know he 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 played into the chaos. And really, to me, the Twitterization of this debate it might as well have been President Trump reading from his Twitter stream. And replying and retweeting and all that um, brought to a debate stage, and we saw how, how that just does not work at all to have an effective dialogue about, about policy discussions.
3: So here's the dilemma here, and, you know, and I will acknowledge that political scientists um, haven't studied this because this hasn't been an issue before. Um, but what do you do when somebody does that? like in that situation, because there is, you know, there's a fine line between keeping it classy and sticking up for yourself. So will you shut up, man, is better than walking over and punching him in the face. Um, and so, you know, the fact that he, <laughs> the, the fact that he said something, um, you know, in defense of himself is, um, you know, is, is something that, yeah, some people are going to criticize, but those people were never going to vote for Joe Biden and were never going to be persuaded to do so anyway. I think if he had, Um, not done anything, that there may have been a chance that that would have been perceived worse. And I think for a lot of people who are appalled by the behavior that they saw, um, you know, while Joe Biden got his licks in, right, I think many of them are going to look at that and they were thinking the exact same thing, right? You know, when people were sighing, um, when people were, you know, putting stuff up, like, I can't deal with this anymore, or I was throwing things at the television or cursing at the TV, right? They were feeling the exact same way that Joe Biden felt on stage. And so, you know, will you shut up, man? Is Or, or calling him a clown was actually somewhat benign, um, you know, and depending on your vantage point, perhaps the right thing to say.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think I think that Biden was in a position where, uh i mean i on the on the one hand he you know he didn't want to sink to trump's level, and I think going into the debate they they sort of knew that something like this could happen uh maybe they didn't expect it to be quite as bad as it was uh but he you know he didn't want to be pulled off his talking points, he wanted to uh be able to speak directly to the American people and give them some idea of what he wants to do if he becomes president, but at the same time, they knew he could not completely ignore personal attacks and and uh attempts by Trump to shut him down, that he had to respond pretty forcefully to those things to just to show that he's in the game. And he knew that, you know, his, his supporters uh, wanted to see him do that. And if he didn't do it, they would have been very disappointed.
1: So uh, we've talked about the overall tone of the debate. Tia, let's break down some of the moments that uh, uh, people are talking about today and how they may have exposed uh, who these people are as candidates. Um, So, Tia, I'm going to play a soundbite and give you the first chance uh, to react to it. Chris Wallace, late in the debate, asked President Trump if he was once and for all willing to condemn white supremacists. And here was that exchange. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to
4: say that they need to stand down and not...
2: Stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem. His this own is a FBI left-wing. This said is a threat. left-wing. Got White supremacist.
1: Go Tia, this is no. one more opportunity that President Trump has had to uh, condemn white supremacy, and he continues to not only not do it but to encourage. Proud Boys, one of the more violent of the white uh, uh, supremacist organizations.
0: So this, unfortunately, I don't, again, we said it before, I don't think this is going to change anyone's mind who currently supports President Trump, and those who already felt President Trump was racist, or at the very least, encourages racism, this enforces that, because the President had a chance to take a stand, and just like he did after Charlottesville, instead he creates these false equivalencies because while Antifa can has been problematic in certain ways, antifa is not um, attributed to nearly the level of violence as white supremacist groups and the proud boys specifically. So to pivot and to fail to specifically speak to that group in any way that condemns them sends a message. But unfortunately, I don't think that message is going to resonate with the people who currently don't think President Trump is a racist. Um, Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, if President Trump isn't a racist, he's playing a pretty good one on TV. Um, And uh, that's a problem. I mean that's just that that's just a, a serious problem. And so if people didn't know that before last night, they saw it uh, plain as day. It wasn't just that; it was also sort of his rant against anti bias training and other kinds of things. But the fact that he told the Proud Boys to stand by and stand down, um, and not I outright repudiate, I repu- uh, repudiate sort of what you do, and I don't want any part of that. Uh, I think is <clears throat> telling. And I think part of it is he doesn't want to undermine his um, law and order message, right? Because then that might actually call into question blaming everything on Black Lives Matter um, or Antifa. And, uh, you know, also he knows that, uh, you know, uh, those voters, uh, you know, who align with that ideology are more inclined to vote for him. And, you know, he's not taking the courageous step of being willing to risk losing an election for the sake of a greater anti-racist good because that's just not where he is. Um, Whether it's strategic or whether it's a firmly held belief, it's all still very crass, very craven, and it's doing damage to our country.
1: Well, there you go. And, Greg, I want to give you a shot, and then I know you want to jump in, Ellen. This is more than just an election. This is more than a question of who won the point during that debate last night. This is a question about a violent organization uh, that can do harm to us as you know, as Americans that can that can perpetrate violence against fellow Americans so this is much bigger than an election issue greg
2: you're exactly right and this this is this couldn't have been teed up more for him by chris wallace and president trump squandered a massive opportunity to address really one, one of his most obvious political vulnerabilities in his refusal to condemn right-wing extremism and telling telling pride boys to stand by instead and the Republicans I heard from last night were worried about down ticket after effect of, of that outright refusal. This can't be called fake news. This can't be called – you know, this can't be easily spun over. This was seen by tens of millions of Americans on, on live TV where he had he had it just laid out right in front of him to just say, yes, I condemn any sort of right-wing extremist violence as well as – you know, he could have added it, left-wing stuff in there too if he wanted to. Um, but he didn't, and and, and the entire uh, the American electorate was there to see it. Alan, from an electoral standpoint,
4: I think this is nuts. Um, I, I I just don't understand it. I and mean, once again, I don't understand what the strategy is here. The president has a huge problem right now with college-educated voters in general, and college-educated women in particular. And a lot of the, both his, his style of debating last night, um, his uh, you know incivility, and particularly these comments about uh, his failure, his unwillingness to to forcefully condemn white supremacists, it seems to me is is just going to reinforce that problem. It's, it's, there's no way he's going to make any headway with this. And, and you know, as, as Joe Biden tried to point out. In fact, we know that the danger danger. of the level of violence is much greater from the far right than it is from the far left right now.
1: All right. That said, I want to I want you know, many people have commented on the fact that it became clear that President Trump did not go in with much of a strategy other than to try to intimidate both the moderator and Biden, which at times he seemed able to do. But but I'm wondering, Tia. If, in fact, the president on a couple of occasions may have put Joe Biden in an interesting corner, Um, and and this relates to a soundbite we're going to play right now, in which the president says to Biden, uh, your support, Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, you've got a socialist agenda, Um, why don't you just fess up? Here's that exchange, and then, Teal, let's talk about it.
2: You agreed with Here's Bernie Sanders yeah, for the manifesto. idea. Let, now let him. there the is no manifesto, number Please one. Please let him speak, Mr. Number President. two. You just lost the left. Number two. I, I, you just lost the left. You agreed with Bernie Sanders on a plan How, uh, Folks, absolutely folks, agreed Folks, do you to, have
1: any idea what this doing. They call it doing? All right, so Tia, it, 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 there was that exchange, and then he also, Trump went after him saying he supported the new Green Deal, Big deal for AOC. And Biden said, no, I don't. I have my own plan. I wonder if if the president did, in fact, rather cannily uh, expose some of that, uh, the problem that Biden is going to have with the left and how people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are going to respond today.
0: Again, I so I think what President Trump wants to do is turn off progressives from supporting biden depressed turnout on the democratic side because you know if not enough democratic voters show up then president trump can win re-election so it's a clear strategy that he hopes if he can highlight that biden does not embrace um some of the some of the policies of progressive democrats they may stay home um and that is that is a concern for biden and that's always been a concern however I think that AOC didn't wake up this morning surprised that Joe Biden doesn't support Medicare (laughs) for all or the Green New Deal. You know, that's not new information. And I think progressives have been grappling with this since Biden won the South Carolina primary. You know, so, yes, this is a concern, but I think that for most Democrats, from the left to the center— their bigger concern is a, not another trump uh term and i think that is probably going to you know usurp their other concerns with joe biden
1: thank you for that okay i've got to get to a break When we come back, we can continue talking, weaving uh, aspects of the debate into our conversation. But I really would love to move this conversation toward the impact it may have here in the state of Georgia on voters and how people are going to line up. Candidates on the ballot are going to line up around what happened last night. As we go to break, uh, our good friend, Dr. Carlos Del Rio at Emory University had a great tweet last night. Here's what he said. He said, watching the debate is giving me a pre-existing condition. (laughs) You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
0: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Dr. Alan Abramowitz, Dr. Dr. Andrew Gillespie, uh, Tia Mitchell from the AJC, Greg Bluestein, also AJC, are with us. Um, Andra, during the break, uh, you uh, asked a question, which is, what does all this mean for the future of debates? The, the, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom within 12 hours after the debate was, why would the Biden campaign want to do another debate if it's going to be anything like last night? I can't help but wonder if there's another side to that. Why would the Trump campaign want to put him in the same position again and perhaps uh, look really bad, as apparently many people think he did last night? First, you, Andra.
3: Well, um, and I think, Alan, for, for bringing it up, I mean, I think that that's a legitimate question. But we all know that oh. uh, President Trump marches to his own beat, And so he may want another one. And he may actually try to tone it down for the next debate to try to say, you know, see, I can keep it under control, folks. Um you know, I you know I think that there isn't much incentive for the Biden campaign to debate him again. I also don't think that the Commission on Presidential Debates might actually want to see this happen again. Um, I do think that Chris Wallace lost control um, of the debate, um, but there's a part of me that's very sympathetic to him. You know, I moderate stuff all the time, um, not debate, and certainly with much more benign panelists, but. If a panelist wants to go off in left field, they do it, and there really isn't a whole lot that you can do to control it. Um, and so it is really—it's harder than it looks. So I do want to give Chris Wallace a little bit of grace there, but part of me just wanted to like channel my mother and start telling people what they weren't going to do on stage, and um, you know that's that, thats hard to do when you're in that type of <laughs> a, a pressured environment. But if they're not gonna—if they're not gonna behave and they have a history of not behaving you know, I think that there, you know, there could be something to be said for constructive disengagement.
4: Yeah, I I, I think we're going to have, I think we're going to have more debates, and I suspect we probably are, uh, but I would not be surprised to see the Presidential Debate Commission uh, deciding to make some changes in the rules and format. And one in particular that I think has been suggested by a number of people in the aftermath of last night's debate could be very helpful and that is that the moderator should have a mute button available. Uh, and that perhaps uh, one of the candidates uh, should, who's not speaking the one, while the other one is uh, answering a question should be muted. Now may, That may not work for the entire length of the debate, but at least for the segments where the candidates are supposed to have a segment of time to, to, to answer a question, uh, that, that it would be very helpful for any kind of rational discussion to have the other candidate, especially if it's President Trump, not be able to constantly interrupt.
1: All right. Um, we'll watch how that unfolds. But 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 Tia and Greg, I unless I've missed something, Tia, I have not yet seen what you would normally expect in the immediate aftermath of last night's debate, and that's news releases from David Perdue or Kelly Leffler congratulating the president for his superb performance in how he handled Joe Biden last night. Now, maybe I've missed them, but I get their news releases. Are they silent at this moment? Have I missed it? Can you break, give us some news or no?
0: Perdue did put out a press release uh, this morning that references the debate, but pivots to an attack on his opponent, John Ossoff. So, um, you're right though, and not just other Republicans and Democrats, all the outside groups that usually flood your inboxes with debate response, there was a little bit of that, but not as much. And I think that's because most people on both sides of the aisle knew that there were really no winners last night. And as many people have said, the American people Um, voters lost last night because it wasn't very much useful dialogue about what these men hope to do if they are elected president. And so, as I've said many times, I hope one day the American people rise up and start demanding more of our elected officials and prospective elected officials.
1: Greg, how does Kelly Leffler? maybe they're just waiting to see how the reaction is from people here, but Greg, Kelly Leffler sent out a tweet uh, day before yesterday uh, that I just didn't understand. I mean, I get she's tying herself to the president's uh, 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 side, but she put out the tweet saying, I agree with the president, Joe Biden should take a drug text test before the debate, uh, this notion that he was taking performance enhancing drugs. Um, the fact, how does this impact her race with Doug Collins, how does it affect uh, uh, David Perdue against uh, John Ossoff? I just wonder, you talked, I think, about the down-ballot consequences near the top of the show.
2: Yeah, it's hard to see this <laughs> having too many down-ballot consequences. Uh, Senator Leffler's entire campaign strategy has been about giving herself no daylight between her and President Trump. Um, and her tweet last night was, Trump crushed Joe Biden tonight and proved exactly why he deserves four more years. So, so and retweet if you oh, agree. Oh, thank so that, you for that. I, so she and look. Thank you for saying no that. Surprise. I missed that. Yeah, yeah, but and that's that's also no surprise. David Perdue has played it a little bit more, uh, well, a little differently. He has been focusing a pro-Trump message to conservatives, but here in like a to a broader audience in Metro Atlanta on broadcast air, he doesn't talk about the president at <laughs> all. But that doesn't mean he's not going to be first in line to greet the president when he came to Atlanta. Um, on Friday, but I'll point out this one thing from the the latest Quinnipiac poll that came out yesterday, and it showed Biden at 50% in Georgia, Trump at 47%. So that's within the three percent margin of error. But the number I, I want to highlight is two percent. That is the the number of people who either said they didn't know or they didn't want to answer the question about who they're supporting. So they're, you're you're fighting over like basically nothing in terms of undecided voters. The the people who who have already made up their minds. Are, are also the people who are very likely to, to to vote straight ticket down ballot. I mean, David Perdue might slightly outperform President Trump um, in in November, um, but you're not going to look at like a three or four percent boost over where tr- Trump's numbers are. So as goes Trump, so go these candidates, and they're not going to they're not going to go out there and and criticize Trump's performance, even though even though the American people saw what they saw, which was 70 interruptions over the span of 90 minutes.
1: All right. So that leads us into a larger conversation. I, I do want to go, go back to the Quinnipiac poll in just a minute. But, but before we go back to that poll, because it says some interesting things about Senate race number two. Alan, um, I, I said at the very top of the show that you published an interesting piece, as you do frequently in uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. Uh, and, and you told us at the top of the show you were uh, crunching numbers uh, not only on states that have polling Already, but but you could look at other data that gave you an indication of what might happen in states where we don't have significant uh, polling. Mm-hmm. And and if you don't mind, I want to just quickly read to you a little bit about what you concluded as you did your uh, research. Mm-hmm. You say there are enough competitive states for Donald Trump to come back and win, but Joe Biden is considerably closer to the magic number of two seventy than Trump based on the polls. But then you say this: in twenty sixteen, Donald Trump shocked the political world by pulling off a victory in the Electoral College, despite losing the popular votes, so on and so on. You talk about the states where Trump uh, had victories that led him to his 270 plus, but then you say he's currently trailing in every 2016 swing state, including Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, although the margin in Florida is very close, and he's being forced to spend money and time defending states that he won easily in 2016. All right. Tell us about this.
4: Well, exactly. So Georgia obviously is one of the states that Trump won pretty easily in 2016 by a margin of over five points. He's being forced to spend money here. He's neck and neck with Joe Biden in Iowa. He's neck and neck with Joe Biden in Ohio. Um, And actually, he's only a point or two ahead of Biden in Texas. And these are all states that he won by a very wide margin in 2016, while at the same time, He's trailing Biden in those crucial swing states that he narrowly won four years ago. Um, so uh, clearly, the Trump campaign is on the defensive. They're are having to spend money to defend states that want not usually. Um, they're not leading in any state. Not even close, in fact, in any state that uh, that Hillary Clinton won four years ago. So the state of the race right now, uh, with a with you know not that much time left, uh, is that uh, Biden is. You know, it's currently pretty close to uh, having the 270 electoral votes that he needs to win this election, you know, in hand. Uh, he's not quite there yet, and and that could change. But uh, I don't think anything that happened in that debate last night is going to help him in that regard.
0: And I just I found it interesting um, this morning in the Jolt um, newsletter we're putting out one of the super PACs that supports President Trump, America First Action, has invested two point eight million dollars to help defend President Trump, attack Joe Biden in Georgia, and those ads are running in markets like Macon, Savannah, and Albany, you know, trying to help defend President Trump in Georgia.
4: Right. A state that Andre? a state that Biden doesn't need. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, I think we should Andrew? all accept that this race is going to, you know, is is going to be close, um, and so and, and so you know we expect that Joe Biden is going to win the popular vote. It's just a question of what the distribution of votes is going to look state to state. So I think the calculus that Allen is pointing to suggests that there um, are states uh, that are much more competitive than they were in 2016, and that uh, Donald Trump who you know, we haven't talked about fundraising yet, is behind the eight ball in fundraising, is now having to extend resources in places where he shouldn't have to in order to maintain a comfortable electoral college lead.
1: Uh, Alan, um, every time we talk about polling on this show, my boss, the CEO of George Public Broadcasting, sends me a note saying, why do you keep talking about polls? We know what happened in 2016 when people said Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. And, and she makes a point that polling is only a snapshot of a moment. It is not a prediction mm-hmm. of the outcome of a race. Never th- so why shouldn't people like my boss be skeptical when we talk about what the polls say about Biden being at or close to 270?
4: Uh, Well, first of all, I would say that um, there's always reason to be skeptical uh, and that, yes, some of the polls in 2016 missed the mark, especially in some of the swing states, although the the national polls on the whole are pretty close to the the actual numbers. Uh, 2018, the polls did very well. Uh, But the main thing I would say is that 2020 is not 2016. And, and if you compare Biden's lead with Clinton's lead four years ago, what you see is that Biden has had a, not only a somewhat larger lead overall, but he's had a much more consistent lead. Uh, and that's true nationally, and it's true in most of these twin states where he's ahead. Uh, and it's also true that there are far fewer undecided and third-party voters this time than there were four years ago. One of the reasons the polls were off the mark four years ago is that you had a shift in the last week or two of the election of undecided and third-party voters toward President Trump. We don't have very many of those voters this time, and those voters who don't like either candidate who mainly voted for Trump four years ago now seem to be mainly going to to Biden as the challenger. So, So I think it's a different situation, which is not to say that there couldn't be problems or errors this
1: time. There certainly could. Andrew, let me give you a shot before we go to break.
3: Just to add to what Alan said, you know, part of the problem in 2016 in those uh, Rust Belt states was that some of them, they stopped polling, right? And so they might have been able to, to uh, detect that movement had they been in the field uh, with public surveys before that. The other thing is that I think we look at polls to try to tell us what the actual number is going to be. They're telling us what the range is. And most of the time, the actual number was within the range of what the polls were predicting. And we just have to understand the imprecision of polls and and understand what they're telling us and what they're not telling us.
1: All right. As we go to break, um, one more uh, tweet from our listeners who were joining us on Twitter last night. Biscuit Boom says, Bill, it was wild. As a political scientist, I feel that Biden did well, not great, but pretty good. Trump had some decent one-liners here and there. Biden was presidential, policy-oriented, showed strength, empathy, and focus. He did dodge a couple of questions. Just another one of your responses. Let's take our final break and come back with Greg Bustin, an interesting a piece of data from the Quinnipiac poll about Senate race number two. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. Greg Bluestein, yesterday you had at AJC.com what we old timers from the old Chicago newspaper days like to call a scoop. You revealed that uh, President Jimmy Carter had endorsed Raphael Warnock. Uh, That came only about four days after uh, uh, President Barack Obama did the same thing. Uh, and now the Quinnipiac poll actually is the first poll we've seen that puts Warnock ahead of both Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins in that massive 21-candidate Senate race number two.
2: Yeah, this is a movement that, frankly, I've been expecting for, uh, for a little bit here. <clears throat> um, polls way back in the summer showed a Warnock neck and neck in that special election with Matt Lieberman on the Democratic side. Uh, but he's been slowly distancing himself, and this is the first poll to show him way out in front. He's at 31 Le- percent. Senator Leffler's at 23 percent, and Congressman Collins is at 22 percent. So a clear, a clear lead in this poll. It differs from the three polls that we saw last week, including the AJC poll that showed more of a uh, muddle up front. But clearly, what's starting to happen is that Warnock has spent more than six million dollars right now on TV ads. That's starting to to boost his message. The Democratic Party is starting to con- is is continuing to consolidate behind them with two former presidents. Than last week, both endorsing his campaign. And Matt Lieberman just can't keep up. He doesn't. He's not raising anything close to as much money as, as Reverend Warnock. He doesn't have any sort of a high profile um, endorsements. He doesn't have any institutional support, and he doesn't have the same campaign apparatus that that Reverend Warnock has right now. As he's starting to start to, starting to do more in person events.
3: I Andra mean, I, I then
1: and
2: Tia.
3: I, I agree with 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 Greg. I mean, I think institutions and networks matter, um, and so this was eventually going to pay off for Reverend Warnock, who had been consolidating that support around him from the beginning. The movement that we see in the polls is largely due to African American voters consolidating around Warnock. So that hadn't happened before. In polls that we've seen before. Um, and you know, perhaps black voters were waiting to get to know him, or were waiting to see amongst the Democratic candidates who looked like they were going to be the strongest in the field. They wanted to see that institutional apparatus line up around Warnock. Uh, I have to say it was something that I expected was a matter of time, and so we're now starting to see that come to fruition.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, Warnock is the only Democratic candidate in that race who has the resources to advertise on television uh, as well. So um, that, that alone should should boost him. The the interesting question, I, I, I think, is uh, what's going to happen when the runoff. This, this race is uh, clearly headed toward a runoff in January. By the way, the other Senate race may also end up in a runoff. Um, so that could be in a, quite an interesting situation. But in this case, I think we've got Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins tying themselves as closely as possible to President Trump running far to the right, which is, I think, setting up Warnock For the potential to uh, be very competitive in a runoff election against either one of them uh, come January.
0: Yeah, I do think the I think now that Warnock is starting to, you know, emerge as that that chosen Democratic candidate, not just amongst the establishment but amongst rank and file voters. I think we're only going to see his support rise as people start abandoning Lieberman and even Tarver. You know what I mean? Even if they don't drop out, I think you're going to start seeing voters saying, hey, I'm going to stick with Warnock. But that's also going to require Warnock to get more attention. You're going to see more um, people digging into his old sermons and in statements, uh, but I do think it'll be interesting. You know, if only if only the special election goes to a runoff, that is not a good position for Democrats because we know they struggle with getting their voters to show up in a runoff. But if you can get two statewide races in a runoff and up the stakes even more, I think that only helps Democrats because it incentivizes them that much more to show back up again.
1: Greg, uh, Professor Audrey Haynes from University of Georgia on our show yesterday uh, suggested that that Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver, if this ends up being a runoff in Senate race number two between the two Republicans, Leffler and Collins, uh, anybody, if either of those guys think they're going to have a future with the Georgia Democratic Party, they really will have tarnished their Reputations, if they are viewed as the people who stopped a Democrat from having a clear shot in a runoff, probably at winning. Do you think that's correct?
2: I mean, I don't think that they're going to stop a Democrat even before this poll um, showed. I don't. I don't think they were going to squeeze. I know on social media and among especially National Democrats, that was the trend is is saying, oh, it looks like they're going to they're going to squeeze Warnock out of a, a runoff, but. The, the the operatives who are very involved in these races never thought that was a possibility. Uh, the one thing that I heard from a lot of Democrats is, is it does deprive Warnock of a very, very slim chance of an outright win because they're going to bleed away votes no matter what. But at this point, it doesn't even matter if they get out of the race because their names are still on the ballots. They're still on more than 1.3 million absentee ballots sent to voters. They're still going to be on those touchscreens, and so they're still going to take away um, – a certain percentage of 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 the vote, even if they drop out now. And I think it's still a moot point because I I think that Warnock is is I don't think that we'll see any more polls with Warnock um, neck and neck with Lieberman at all.
4: No, I I yeah I completely agree with that. Um I, I and I don't think I don't think Warnock can get to 50%. I think it's highly unlikely. But in in the in the in the runoff in January, I think that we you know the, the turnout question is going to be very interesting and key there. But the difference from, between this runoff and some of the earlier runoffs that we've seen where the Democratic vote really collapsed, is that in this case, even if there's only one contest, we're going to have a very prominent African-American candidate on the ballot in the runoff. And that is, a, I think, would go a long way toward boosting African-American turnout, which was a big problem in some of the earlier
1: runoffs. Alan Abramowitz, you get the last word on today's show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Andre Gillespie, you as well. Tia Mitchell and Greg Bluestein. I appreciate all of you being here for a very robust conversation on the show today. Um, again, before we leave you, this was another show we did without pledge breaks because we believe that Political Rewind matters to you as listeners right now. And we on our show have said to our management, please give us this opportunity. They said, yes. Now, please help us. Help us by supporting us. Go to gpb.org. Just make a pledge of whatever you uh, can afford to do, even in these very difficult times. Um, We're out of time for uh, today. We're back with a brand new panel tomorrow. We'll continue talking about the Senate races, among many other topics. And we're going to look at the Hispanic vote on tomorrow's show as well. In the meantime, um, do me a favor. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And run down the street to a doctor's office or a drugstore and get a flu shot. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow.